Hello and welcome to episode 521, 521 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. And yes, it certainly is the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that this sounds a little bit different this week because I've changed the intro music because, you know, new year, new you and all that. Change is as good as a holiday, right? And if you've discovered this community for the first time, well, welcome. I hope you enjoy my interviews with authors and all sorts of great news and tips about the writing industry. And of course, this is where we talk about all things to do with the world of writing and publishing and how to succeed as an author or writer. This week is definitely something different as I thought I would change it up a bit. Now, I asked you guys for your questions and I'm going to answer them in this episode. If you're wondering where I asked this question, it was in our Facebook group. So if you're not familiar, just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join. I'd love to have you in there. Fantastic group of people, aspiring and emerging and established writers, all connecting, sharing knowledge and um It's just such a great community, lots of different people from all walks of life. So that's where I asked the question and that's where I'm going to be drawing on for, you know, providing you with all of the answers. But before I get to those questions and answers, I want to talk about owning the fact that you're a writer. It is time to stop hiding and, you know, it's time to call yourself a writer. Yes, you do it. This tip is inspired by Helen Edwards, who is a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre, and her debut middle grade novel is going to be out in 2023. Now, you may have read about Helen in our newsletter or on the on our blog, and you'll probably identify with this part of her story. Despite being a prolific blogger and publishing two books, Helen found it difficult to put the word writer in her bio, in her social media bio. Well, I'm telling you now, if you write, whether it's poetry or song lyrics or nursery rhymes or picture books or letters to your grandma or middle grade or fantasy or movie reviews or steamy romances or war dramas, I don't care. You are a writer. Be proud of that. You don't have to be published to say you're a writer. If you write, you're a writer. Put it in your Twitter and Instagram bios and don't be afraid to own it. Helen completed our course in writing children's novels. And, you know, after that, she was unstoppable. She started networking. She started attending workshops. She joined professional industry groups. More more importantly, she continued writing until she had completed several more manuscripts. And she was no longer afraid to call herself a writer. And as well as publishing her debut middle grade novel, she also has a memoir coming out and is now a full-time writer. So you can read all about Helen's very inspiring story on our website now, on our blog. And if you would also love to publish a children's book, have a look at Writing Children's Novels, the course. 
That's at writercentercomau slash children. Now let's move on to our first lot of questions. Now, there were so many different and really interesting questions that you guys asked, and some of them really made me, you know, have to reflect and think. So in no particular order, I'm just going to go through them. Robert asked, in an interview at the end of the narration of his The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho audiobook, I heard the actor, writer, narrator, Patterson Joseph expressed how much he enjoys the editing process. In fact, Joseph said he preferred editing to writing. How do you feel about editing? Do you love it or loathe it? That is a great question, Robert. I don't love it or loathe it. I um, I feel it's necessary. I absolutely think that editing is vital. I, in terms of editing and writing, I prefer, when it comes to my own writing, I prefer the writing. I do still think the editing is an important part of it and it makes the writing better for sure. But I actually really enjoy editing other people's work. And that's obviously why I have been an editor as well. Um, And I still do a lot of freelance editing because I think that Uh, particularly because it's a skill that's acquired over time. Like I didn't enjoy editing very much in the early part of my career, or I didn't necessarily have as much confidence with editing in the early part of my career because I was still honing my craft and still learning so much. But now that I've been doing it for decades, I guess I, what I enjoy about editing is because, well, because I've been doing it for decades, I've gained quite a bit of skill in it. And I can just see very clearly what needs to happen for something to go from good to great, you know, for for someone else's words to go from good to great. Um, It's something that, I guess, because of sheer practice, I can just read something and know instantly, okay, that needs to happen just one word needs to be uh, inserted there. Just tweaking the order of this will make it so much better for the reader. So I don't love or loathe it when it comes to my own writing, but when I'm editing somebody else's writing and it's something that, you know, uh, a topic I guess I enjoy, or quite frankly, to be honest, it doesn't have to be a topic I enjoy. Um, If I can see that I can take it from good to great, then I do love it then. Hope that answers your question, Robert. Now, Jax has asked a question. Would love to ask, please, how would you rank the following in order of importance for one trying to get back into writing? Uh, And Jax has written, building a writing habit, finding a writing community and support group or support group, attending writing or author events, reading widely, and maybe anything else that you think is important. (laughs) Okay, good question, Jax. Without a doubt, number one with a bullet, number one way ahead of all of the rest is building a writing habit. So, Jack's asked, just as a reminder, how would you rank the following in order of importance for one trying to get back into writing? Without a doubt, building a writing habit. I mean, that is by far and away, the rest is important too, but building a writing habit is by far and away 
way more important than, you know, finding a writing community or attending events or reading widely or anything else, because it is that writing habit that will enable you to get back into writing. For the others, finding a writing community, attending events, reading widely, um, and so on, I would say second, but actually a far second, because, you know, building a writing habit is so very important you know, finding some space in your life or some regular time in your day. I was speaking to a writer recently who um, wrote from, you know, 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. And that was how he built his writing habit and and made sure he had a regular um, spot of time where he was, that he was dedicating to his writing. Other people, now you'll never find me doing that. I'm never going to be up at 5am writing because I'm more likely to be at the other end of the day. So you could do what works for you. I'm a night owl. Um, so if you, you just need to work out what's best for your own circadian rhythms. So as I was saying, I think second is finding a writing community. And I truly believe that that can be done online these days. Now, if you were asking me 15 years ago, I'd probably have a different answer. But technology these days with Zoom, with, with um, you know, online communities, it is so much easier to form uh, a community or be part of a community online than it ever has been before. So I would suggest, suggest that it's quite easy to find a writing community online. Now, that could take various forms. It could take a Facebook group. It could take a um, Slack group, a Discord group, a group that you formed or a, a, a you know cohort that you formed while you were doing a course, maybe one of our courses. Um, because the thing is, attending writer or author events, physically attending them, they might not be in your area. Um, they might not happen that frequently. You sh- it's still great to, to go to them. I'm a big fan of going to festivals and conferences especially but you know they only happen once a year generally so I would certainly say building a writing habits way number one number two is finding a writing community online um number three reading widely is very important because any genre that you want to write in or any type of writing you want to do you do need to read widely just so that you see what else is going on in the industry but not only read widely so sorry read widely but also make sure that as part of that reading you read you know the best you read really, really good quality writing. There's no point just reading, you know, rubbish stuff widely. You can still read widely, but make sure part of that is really quality writing. And then I would say, you know, attending writing and, and author events. I'm, I mean, that's that's also important. Like I said, I think that the, the contacts that you make in real life at things like festivals and conferences are certainly a really good thing. Um, as well. So I hope that answers your question, Jax. Meg has asked, at what point did you feel confident or deserved to call yourself a writer, pre or post being published? And what was the catalyst to using that title in earnest? Okay. So I was a freelance writer before I became an author. So I started calling myself a, a writer, but not an author, 
uh, fairly early on because I started freelancing. Um, now, I my day job while I so I freelanced on the side, and I had a day job that was, you know, not to do with writing. Um, so I would sort of at the time say, oh, well, you know, in my day job, I'm so, such and such, but I'm also a freelance writer. So I, at the time I said I was both things and I, I then I became a full-time writer and I was confident to call myself a writer because I was actually, you know, employed by a magazine and I was able to call myself a, a writer. So I had a slightly different entry into being an author, right? It was years later though that I um, was able to call myself an author because you can't really call yourself an author until you've written a book. Uh, and and I was I was fine with that. I, I, I always just wanted to be a writer. So even when I was just freelance writing, I was quite happy to be calling myself a writer because I was writing, I was getting published and I was getting paid to be a writer. Um, yeah, I hope that answers that question, Meg. Um, but I think the broader thing that you're asking is when maybe you can call yourself a writer. And now, as I said at the top of this podcast, if you are writing, you are a writer. You might not be a published writer just yet, but you are a writer. So that's okay. Call yourself a writer. Carmen has asked, can you share your typical routine from waking to sleeping? Oh my God. Okay. Basically, how do you juggle it all like responsibilities and creativity and so on? Okay. That's a great question, Carmen. And my answer to that is a little bit different right now when I'm answering you today as it is normally. So I'm going to give you a couple of different answers. Right now, as I'm recording this in January, I am actually doing, I'm actually extremely busy because some of you may know that I have a parallel career as a visual artist and I have a um, solo art exhibition coming up in starting mid-January that will go to mid-February. So there's a lot of preparation and a lot of painting and a lot of creation that's associated with that because there are so many paintings that I need to ensure are ready for that exhibition. By the way, you're all invited. I'll put the link in the show notes or just find me on social media at Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O on Instagram. I'm also, I also have a website, ValerieKoo.com. You can check that out if you want to find out details of the exhibition, but you're all invited. If you'd like to come to opening night, it's on Thursday, the 19th of January. It's in the city of Sydney. Um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a space that it is, that is near where the old entertainment centre used to be. But like I said, I will um, put all of those details. Those details are all on social media. But at the moment, because I am uh, preparing for that, and you know, I'm 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 going to be really honest here. I ooh, probably should have started preparing a lot earlier. And um, I've been so busy in the last year, in the last few months, that I got to admit, I actually contacted the organisers a few months ago and said, "Hey, look, I don't have enough bandwidth for this. 
can you, you know, get someone else? Maybe we can delay this or push this a few months. And they said, no. And I thought they'd say yes, but they said, no, it's too late to pull out now. So I had no choice but to go through with it. So I have been painting up a storm and this is not advisable, nor is is it sustainable, but it's just what I'm having to go through right now to achieve a result. Now, I go to bed at about 3 a.m. Yes, you heard that correctly, 3 a.m. at the moment because and because I have that much to do. Um, and I go to bed at 3 a.m. because at that time, at about 3 a.m., my cat, Rocky, goes bonkers because he hangs out with me and he pretty much says at 3 a.m., I've had enough, I want to go to bed, and he starts screaming until we go to bed. Uh, so I don't usually go to bed that late all the time, but when I've got something on like this, that's what's happening because I have to achieve a result. You're probably wondering, okay, what time do I wake up? Well, if I go to bed at 3 a.m., I'm probably waking at around eight, to be honest. I need at least five hours. And then I typically do the things like check my email. Well, you know, I have breakfast. I do all those sorts of things. But then I start my work day pretty soon after with email, checking messages from my team at the Australian Writers' Centre, um, uh, you know, answering any queries and that sort of thing. And then, to be honest, I will often um, go to a cafe, but I don't sit there and sip coffee and stare at the world. I go there with my computer and I work for uh, to clear my inbox. I find myself really effective because I don't talk to anyone at the cafe. I just have my coffee and that is where I clear my inbox and basically plan my day. And after I don't do that, I come back, I work from home, I come back and I um, do what I planned for that day. Now, right now, because I'm preparing for the exhibition, the art exhibition, I'm doing a combination of um, course development in terms of writing courses. I am creating a whole bunch. You should see all of my post-it notes. They, They cover a wall. Um, on the courses that I am developing at the moment for writing because I love doing it and I love helping people um, achieve their writing goals. And I intersperse intersperse that with painting. So sometimes, and it's kind of good because once you kind of get stuck into one and you've done it for a couple of hours, it's good to take a break. So I'll take a break and I'll do some painting. And likewise, I'll, 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 I'll do painting for a while and then I'll go back to course development. And then I will do that, quite frankly, all day. Um, You know, I'll break for dinner at 7.30. Obviously, I break for lunch as well. Um, But I break for dinner at 7.30 and, you know, I hang out with my family and, and, and all of that. And then I will pretty much start painting again um, around 10 o'clock at night until 3 a.m. Now that, as I said, is, has, and that's been going on for a couple of months um, and will go on until the exhibition opens. But after that, I won't have to paint as much and I will go to bed at one or one thirty. 
probably 1.30. And so I will get more sleep, hooray. And um, my day is pretty much the same as what I just described, but I won't do quite as much painting as I am now because I uh, won't need to, I'm not having a massive deadline where I have to create a bazillion paintings for for an exhibition. Um, Sometimes now, uh, oddly, I have, in whether it's writing or painting, if I've thought something through, I can turn on the tap of creativity, so to speak. But if I'm at the very start of a project and I need to think, oh, my God, I don't, you know, I haven't really thought about what I need to write, I haven't really thought about what I need to paint, I, um, I can't just uh, – well, I – what I need to do then, because I need to have a map, so to speak, so to speak. So where I create that map is one of two places. One, I either extend my time at the cafe and I do stare into space and work out the map, whether it's something that I need to write, whether it's a course I need to create, whether it's a artwork I need to, or a body of work I need to create, I will work out that map. Once I have the map, I can just kind of go and do but it's the map that requires, you know, that um, time to gestate and and think about. Um, so yes, I can. I either extend my time at the cafe, or um, yeah, often because I'm a night owl, a late at night, I journal. People I talk about morning pages. I often speak about morning pages, and that I don't do them in the morning that I do them in the evening and that is off uh, that's when I'll do my the evening is often where I will do my morning pages Julia Cameron's morning pages and so much creativity occurs then when I do my morning pages when I do my journaling so many ideas so much clarity to be honest I mean I do get ideas often whether I'm at the cafe in the shower a lot, but just because you get ideas doesn't necessarily mean they're the right ones for you to pursue. It's great to get ideas. I'll get, I get a lot of ideas in the car as well. So it's great to get ideas, but the clarity as to which ones to pursue occur when I do my journaling. And then it's very clear to me which path to do. Otherwise it's just a whole jumble of fantastic ideas. Well, they may or may not be fantastic, but, you know, of ideas. Um, but the journaling helps me decide which ones to do. I hope that's useful, Carmen. Karen has asked, which of your many creative talents represents you the most, the one that touches your soul? What a great question. Oh, that – now, when I saw that, that really caused me to reflect, Karen. But the answer came to me quite quickly. Um because I do have various creative interests. I may not necessarily be talented at them, but I certainly have creative interests and passions. You know, um, writing, I I have gained a certain level of skill only just because I've been doing it for decades. Um, Art, which is a new thing. Music, I'm learning the cello. I'm not good at that at all. So I don't have talent in that, but it's certainly an interest of mine. Um, 
you know, I want to learn languages, blah, blah, blah. But the one that touches my soul to be, is very clear to me. In fact, it's none of them. I mean, I love them all, but the thing that touches my soul, the thing that lights me up every day, the thing that makes me just full of, you know, excitement and passion and all of that is helping people appreciate, understand, and tap into their potential. I can't tell you how much that lights me up. I love helping people seeing that what they once thought was impossible is actually possible. Um, And that occurs differently in different people. Uh, So I love trying to tap into what is it that's going to help that particular person realize that they are so talented, that they're so capable, that there's so much that they can do and achieve and, um, you know, turn their minds to. Now, the thing is that um, that, you know, hey, if I could coach someone to Olympic glory, I would, but I can't. I'm not sporty. I'm not talented in that field at all. So I can help people in the areas where I have some level of experience. So certainly with writing, I can help people achieve their writing dreams. One day I might be able to help people achieve their um, artistic dreams. I don't feel I have that um, level of experience yet. I can absolutely help people achieve their business dreams because I've been involved in the world of business for so long as well. So it's not that the the industry or the field necessarily that, I mean, I love them and, and, and and, you know, I find them absolutely fascinating and interesting. It's not the industry that touches my soul. It is the fact that I'm helping somebody understand what they're capable of and I think almost I think everyone is capable of um, way more than they than they realize so that is what touches my soul and thank you for asking that question because it's yeah it's you can probably hear it in my voice it excites me okay Asha asked do you still Despite your considerable success and obvious talents, have moments of deep self-doubt. How do you push through? Oh my God, Asha. Yes, I have huge, (laughs) not just moments, but I have huge sessions of self-doubt. I have so much self-doubt. Yeah, for sure. In so many areas. I will admit that I don't have as much self-doubt in the world of writing, but you got to understand, I've been doing it for decades, literally decades. So when you've been doing something for that long, you, you know, get a certain level of confidence in it. But I have self-doubt in so many other, in basically everything else <laughs> that I, that I do. And the moments of, I know this sounds ridiculous and I can't believe this is a bit true confessions. The moments that I feel my deepest self-doubt, my deepest inadequacy, my deepest, you know, depths of I'm never going to amount to anything, uh, it's quite ridiculous. It's it's a double-edged sword because they are the exact same moments that I also experience 
awe and wonder and and appreciation of somebody else's talents. So, you know, I don't know. I'll go watch Hugh Jackman or something and I just marvel at his talent and you know, uh, look, maybe not him as Wolverine or anything, but him when he's singing and dancing on stage, commanding an audience. Um, I marvel at that. And then, uh, and, and I just think, oh, I, I can't, I'm not even one millionth of that. Um, so, I mean, that's just one example, right? So yes, I feel South self-doubt all the time this is a um regular occurrence um in in certain areas i feel imposter syndrome fairly regularly as well how do you push through well i guess i do have a coping mechanism which i i'd love to share with people because it's um it's very useful uh i somehow came to the conclusion Uh, some years ago, I can't remember when, I can't remember the specific point even, but I realized that even though I experience incredible self-doubt and imposter syndrome in, in some areas, the only way forward is to just put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. Um, because what is what? What are your choices? You can either dwell in it and let it debilitate you, and then and let it stop you from moving forward, or you can go, okay, I have self doubt, I feel inadequate, but I'm going to move forward anyway. And without a doubt, the latter is a far better option because just the passage of time makes that self doubt not go away, but just reduce a tiny bit and then and then another another little tiny bit and then over a period of time another little tiny bit and then over a certain period of time like with for example my writing career it's not that my self-doubt doesn't exist but it's decreased considerably compared to where it was you know before right just because you've done a certain level of practice um, the pushing through also involves um, just sheer practice. So doing more of whatever it is, doing more of your craft, playing the cello more or painting more or writing more or whatever it is more, right? Um, to give you an example, as I mentioned, I tried to get out of this exhibition a few months ago because I just thought I don't have the time, I don't have the bandwidth, I don't have anything but when I couldn't get out of it and I had to paint a billion paintings, <laughs> by the way, I started vlogging about, about this video blogging, right? Vlogging about this. If you want to check it out on YouTube, I mean, just search for me because, um, I thought it would be, because I haven't got anything else to do. <laughs> no. Um, and one of the things that I realized is that because I was forced in a sense to uh, create so many paintings, well, the, the, that, the volume and the frequency and volume makes you learn so much faster. So I'm very grateful because the, the stuff I've learned in the past just 
you know, two months could have taken me a year to learn if I just meandered along without having this kind of deadline. The same absolutely goes for writing. If you create a writing habit, which is what we spoke about earlier. If you create a writing habit, you will learn more quicker. I guarantee you just through sheer practice. All right, let's move on to Simone. Simone Simone has said, when life takes over caring for two unwell people, any advice on how to find the sparks that make you want to create again? Oh, that's a great question, Simone. And sometimes we can be so uh, distracted or just busy with other things that um, it can be difficult sometimes to find that spark or, or not find the spark, to give you, find you, find the motivation to create again. And I suggest don't look for it. Don't look for a spark. Now, if you get a spark or or you find some kind of uh, external motivation, motivation, fantastic, go with it and run with it. But if you don't have it, it's, it's that same thing about pushing through. Um, and it's that same concept of not waiting for the muse to strike, but just deciding, okay, I'm going to start this NaNoWriMo. I'm just going to keep on writing. Even if I'm not motivated, I'm going to write. Because waiting for motivation, oh my goodness, I can tell you, waiting for motivation, you you could wait forever. But sometimes when you just make yourself start writing or painting or creating or whatever it is, whatever your creative pursuit is, once you start, somehow you just go, oh, I'm in the flow. Okay. So I actually suggest not finding the spark, not going in search for the spark and just start small. Like you don't have to think, oh, I need to create a day, a week or anything. You don't even have to create an hour a day. Just create five minutes a day or three pages a day, something really small but that just gives you that momentum. Um, I think that I think that that is something that I think that waiting for a muse or a spark is a little bit of a myth. Um, an art practice or an, a writing practice or any creative practice is exactly that. It's a practice, and people who have been doing it for year for years will tell you that it's a matter of putting your bum in the chair and just doing it. Um, that's not to say that you're not tired. Hey, I understand caring for two unwell people. It's very draining. It's very tiring. But if you don't know when or if you're going to be freed up or when or if they're going to get better, then my and, and you want to create again, then my advice is to create again. Yeah. Uh, push through even when you're unmotivated. All right, so we have more questions, but we're just going to take a little break. Well, because I have a competition for you. Now, I love this. Your competition this week is I have three copies of Et to Brute by Harry Mount and John Davy. Some people might say, oh, you should say Et 
too brute. But this is Latin and it's et too brute. Technically, it's actually et too brute. Uh, yes, I love Latin. I studied Latin. So I'm so excited to bring this um, book to you. This week's giveaway is a light-hearted and fascinating book from Harry Mount and John Davy. Et tu brut unlocks the wisdom of the past, revealing how ancient Latin can help us to live better in the present. And I have three copies for you to be one. Love this, love Latin. There are so many Latin phrases in everyday use that we we, that often we use them without understanding the background and context within which they were actually used. Carpe diem. Now, everyone of a certain age is going to know carpe diem because of Dead Poet Society, right? Stet, right? S-T-E-T. Those of you in offices would know stet. Memento mori. Et to brut. Examples would fill a book. And often these phrases are also used in English translation. The die is cast, crossing the Rubicon, Rome was not built in a day. Many of these phrases are, phrases are humorous, but they're also ri- a rich source of wisdom, the wisdom of the ancients. The chapters of this book include Latin for gardeners, the great Latin love poets, Cicero on how to grow old gracefully and Seneca's stoic guide to life. Each chapter starts with a quotation and is lightly sprinkled with many more with accompanying English translations and entertaining cartoons and illustrations dotted throughout. All right, I have three copies for you to win. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Just follow the instructions. Entries close on Monday, the 16th of January, 2023. But don't worry, if you're at that URL in the future, there'll be some other fantastic uh, competition for you to enter and potentially win. So that's writercenter.com.au slash win. Now back to the questions. Uh, Lee has asked, my query is about writing a novel set in a real place. Why or when should you invent locations in a real place? And how much can you make up about the setting without annoying the readers? Thank you. Okay. Well, I guess you've got to ask yourself in the first place, why do you think it would annoy readers if you make up stuff? Um, you know, I think like, for example, you can set things in the northern beaches of Sydney in at a school that's made up and it's not really going to annoy people. I think people are totally fine, especially if it, dep- it depends on the you know, what happens at that place. Like if a terrible murder or something happened at a place and you set it in a real place and that didn't really happen, I think that they would find that really annoying and might even set some lawyers onto you. So um, uh, it really depends on the situation. So why or when should you invent locations in a real place? An easy answer to that is you might do it if it would be defamatory to the new place, if they could have any legal recourse to you, or if any of the you know owners of the place or anyone associated the, with the place would have any legal recourse to you. Uh, 
that's really just the, the the short answer, you know. If but people set things in real places all the time. But if it's just you know that the character went and grabbed a cup of coffee there, oh yeah, great. So what? But if the character went there to do a drug deal, yeah, you might want to have a fictitious place within the real place, if you know what I mean. I hope that answers that question, Lee. Georgina asked, Stephen King has said, if you don't succeed, get a bigger nail. (laughs) You've had a fabulous writing career in your career path so far. How big was your nail? (laughs) I know that sounds wrong, but if it gives you a giggle, then I'm leaving it. Before you succeeded. Oh, that's a great question, Georgina. If you're not familiar with the Stephen King quote, if at first you don't succeed, get a bigger nail. Basically, oh, by the way, I'll put the um, video, the, the YouTube of, of that with Stephen King actually saying it and the context in which he's saying it um, in the podcast community on Facebook. But basically, Stephen King was talking about the fact that, you know, he wanted to be a writer. He and his brother, I think, wanted to be a writer, want to be writers. And um, he would get, he would send stuff off and he would get rejection slips and he would just stick the rejection slips to his wall with a, with a nail. And after a period of time, he got so many rejection slips that he realized, oh, well, you know, that, that basically they fell off the nail, um, couldn't hold the weight of the rejection slips anymore. And he just found a bigger nail. <laughs> um, so his advice is if you first, you, if at first you don't succeed, get a bigger nail. So Georgina's question, how big was your nail <laughs> before you succeeded? Okay, I guess it depends on which aspect of succeeding. But I think the thing was that I'm not sure how big the nail was, but I can tell you what the nail consisted of. Um, I think that sometimes I think that I live in a world of delusion in the sense that I believe anything is possible, which is, you know, kind of kind of a great trait, I suppose. I don't know whether, let me rephrase that. I don't know whether I truly necessarily believe everything is possible um, because I, as I've mentioned already, suffer deep self-doubt, um, just like many people. But I love the activity associated with pursuing a dream. And so that energizes me and I just love doing stuff to achieve things, whether I achieve them or not. And so um, I I love that enjoyment. And so it's never, it doesn't feel like much of a chore to, to do stuff in the initial phases because it's so exciting to, you know, pursue a goal or, 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 or that sort of thing. Um, and, but it's true, you know, the honeymoon, there is a honeymoon period. And then after it's like, oh, I've done this for so long. Oh my goodness. Am I getting anywhere? Blah, blah, blah. And I definitely experienced that as well because the initial excitement kind of can wear off after a period of time. The other part of it, so I have that, you know, I guess delusion or whatever it is to, that gets me going. Uh, but the other part of it is that I just have this um, persistence, I guess. 
Um, and you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person that if you give me a good enough reason to walk 3000 kilometers, I'll just put one foot in front of the other and I'll just, you know, walk it. If you, if, if it's just for the sake of it, I won't because it won't make any sense to me, but if there is a potential result at the end, I'll do it. Um, in terms of how big was your nail, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that, but I always, um, uh, when I finally realized I wanted to be a writer, I just kind of kept going and kept persisting until I finally got there. And I guess I was relentless in, in trying to achieve that. And I tried so many things. I did courses. I went to events. I read as much as I could I, uh, about the topic. If there were podcasts at the time, I would have listened to podcasts, but they weren't when that was happening decades ago. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I hope that me giving you an insight into what my nail consisted of might um, be helpful. Thanks for that question, Georgina. All right, Kelly has said, when it comes to your career, is there anything you wish you'd done differently? Oh my God, yes. So I discovered very late in life the value of mentors. Now they don't have to be official mentors. They don't have to be, you know, part of a mentorship program or anything like that. They could even be people that you never met right? I mean, great if you've met them as well. But I think, I, I don't, don't know where that comes from. I think being an only child, I didn't have any siblings or like an older person to look up to or whatever. Um, so I did a lot of stuff in isolation for a very long time. Um, I don't mean that to sound bad. I, I, I was never lonely because I don't know what that is because I've always been alone in terms of being an only child. Um, So I don't really get lonely. Um, But uh, it it was very late in life that I finally kind of understood the value of a mentor and and advice from somebody who had gone before. I know that sounds ridiculous because I'm such a big advocate of it now. Um, And that mentor actually came to me, uh, he kind of just appeared um, and decided, oh, I'm going to be your mentor. (laughs) So I'm forever grateful to him for doing that. Um, and that. And after that point, I realized, oh, how great to have a mentor, to have that advice, to have that sounding board, to have that person in your corner. And I have, you know, since then um, sought out paid and unpaid relationships with people who are mentors. There are, of course, like I said, paid mentorship programs, but you can have mentors who are not not necessarily paid in the form of role models, people that you may not have even met, people where you just follow them. You follow their, you get on their email list or you get on their, you know, you follow their social media, you follow their advice. Maybe you do their courses perhaps or that sort of thing. Um, But yes, that was something I did um, quite late in life and I wish I had done it earlier. I hope that answers your question. 
All right, Karen asks, what is that magic ingredient that makes a multiple prize-winning manuscript worthy of an elusive publishing contract? Oh, what a great question. What is that magic ingredient that makes a multiple prize-winning manuscript worthy of an elusive contract? So I'm assuming that you're saying that this manuscript has won multiple prizes but hasn't achieved a publishing contract yet. So first, uh, uh, so there's various sections to this answer, but first what I will say is that it's never one thing, right? It is a confluence of things. It's a combination of things and a confluence of events that's Um, And those ingredients and events are everything to do with the zeitgeist. So sometimes, um, you know, you might have a beautifully well-written manuscript, but if that topic, that theme, whatever, is a bit five years ago, I don't know, like vampires or something, um, then – I mean vampires right now – then it's – the timing is a little bit off, but it'll come back like everything, everything's circular, it'll come back. So it's a combination of the zeitgeist. It's a combination of the other books in that publisher's list. So, you know, um, query different publishers, obviously. Um, It is also, and I'm going to be very frank here, and I'm not suggesting this is your manuscript at all. I'm just talking very generally because I don't know what your manuscript is. Um, I'm talking very generally. It is – I was talking to a publisher the other day and they said that that authors or, you know, aspiring writers don't realise how important it is for them to be pleasant to work with. And – There are red flags that a publisher might see this fantastic contract, I mean, not contract, fantastic manuscript, but they'll start talking to the author and they're really bullshy or they're really, you know, um, just not that great to work with. Um, And they'll pass on what is a fantastic manuscript. Um, and it's so true. Like it's it's like that in anything in life, right? I mean, I I remember when I was in magazines and we were picking the winner of a um a, a competition, but the winner of that competition would be somebody that the staff at the magazine would have to work with uh, for the for the next year. I'm not going to go into details as to who or what or the circumstances, but you know, and. In the end, the staff of the magazine chose the person who was not who didn't necessarily provide the best entry because the person who provided the best entry was just appalling to work with, quite frankly. Um, so they chose the second best person, but she was great to work with. So, um, like I said, not suggesting that this is, uh, you know, um, this is. Uh, 
the only reason. There are so many other reasons. I just thought I'd mention it only because it's top of mind at the moment because of the conversation that I had with the publisher the other day. Um, it's, it's never a, one magic ingredient. It is always a combination of a whole range of things. Is the person great or well, pleasant to work with? Um, the zeitgeist, um, other manuscripts, sorry, other books that are on their list at the time, um, com- com- comparative or com- comparable titles or, or that might be out at the time and so on. All right, Jenny has said, has asked, my work in process, my work in progress, sorry, is set in an artist's residency, okay, where a portal to another realm opens and someone goes through. Oh, that sounds interesting. I want to use the real setting where I did a three-month residency a few years ago, okay, and I want to use some of the happenings and some characteristics of other artists who were there too. The story will be fiction and I will invent characters to deliver it. However, I am concerned about the possibility of upsetting my fellow artists in residence or municipal council members who hosted us when my characters act as they need to in order to create tension and move the story forward. I want to use the name of the actual place where I did the residency, especially because current council staff have offered to help me launch the first book at the venue. What advice do you have for writers wanting to incorporate real places and situations in their fantasy or fiction writing? Okay, so I think incorporating real places and situations is fantastic. Um, in fantasy writing, fiction writing is is fantastic. People do it all the time. People talk about real people even in fantasy, you know, um, uh, real famous people in, in, in their own fantasy or paranormal or whatever writing. So it happens all the time. There's no problem in doing it. So the question is not whether you can do it or not. You can absolutely do it. People do it all the time. And in fact, real places make f- things feel even more authentic. But I feel your question is whether there will be any issues with what you write about the place or whatever. Again, it's going to depend on what actually occurred. Like if a bunch of serial killing occurred, you know, and it's a real place, well, that could be problematic. But I I would also ask, because you've said that, you know, um, I want to use the name of the actual place where I did the residency, especially because current council staff have offered to help me launch the first book. And it kind of sounds like you're kind of wanting to honor them because they're being nice enough for you to launch the book. I mean, I don't think that's good enough reason to, to, to do that. I mean, you can, if you want go nuts, but if you're just doing it to, as a thank you to, um, the fact that they've launched it, hey, there's lots and lots of books that fictionalize places that launch it in the real place, but say, hey, my, this place is fictional, but uh, it's actually based on where we're sitting right now. That happens all the time. I mean, um, uh, a Big Little Lies, Leon Moriarty. Um, it's a fictional school, but it's no secret that it was a Elvis and Audrey night at um, 
in Harbord. Oh, gosh, the name of the exact building. I've been in the building. I did yoga there. Um, but the name of the building escapes me at this exact point in time. But it, it's an actual building, you know, a place in Harbord um, in the northern beaches in Sydney. And it's no secret. Um, Leanne Moriarty put it in a newsletter and stuff like that. She says this fictional place is based on this real place. So it's totally fine to kind of honour it in that way. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's very hard for me to say without knowing what happens in this place in the story because, like I said, if it's something that you could get a legal letter on or or where the characters might be recognisable, um, then that might be problematic. Otherwise, um, otherwise, do it, just do it, but tell your publisher – the the parallels and then their legal department can determine whether or not it's problematic and whether or not if it whether or not you uh, should change it all right now we have a few more questions but before we get to those i have a very important thing to ask you right now are you ready for the word of the week I can't have an episode without having a word of the week, right? All right. So this week's word of the week is flocculent. (laughs) Flocculent. F-L-O-C-C-U-L-E-N-T. This one is not very surprising because it kind of sounds like what it is. Flocculent is an adjective meaning like a flock of wool or covered with a soft woolly substance. So you could say, there were so many cushions on her bed, it looked positively flocculent. Or as I'm sitting right here right now, I am looking at my fluffy white cat, Rocky, who is looking very flocculent. There you go, flocculent. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Writing Picture Books. If you'd love to create your own picture book, a popular five-week course in Writing Picture Books will show you how. Learn online and discover what you need to know about point of view, structure and pace, as well as language and rhythm, finding the right voice, working with illustrations, publishing options and much more. You'll also receive personalised feedback from your tutor on your writing. Let's hear from Victoria McKinley. Hi, I'm Victoria McKinley. I'm a freelance writer and a picture book writer. And my debut picture book called Ribbit Rabbit Robot is out with Scholastic Australia. I know I'm really, really lucky because my work is completely flexible and and I get to work around my daughter. So I'm still always there for pick up and drop off. And, you know, she inspires me. So, you know, she's kind of my muse. So I love spending time with her. I'm a total course junkie. Um, I've done loads of courses with the Australian Writers' Centre. So the writing picture book course um, really made my dreams come true. It was the beginning of uh, my path to publication. Um, I had wanted to be a published author since I was three and a half years old and first started writing little stories and you know it gave me all the skills and the confidence to write picture books and become published. The tutor had worked in the industry for years and she was just had a wealth of knowledge 
So Ribbit Rabbit Robot um, began when I was uh, bath time with my daughter. So she had been given a frog sponge for Christmas. So we were kind of playing with that in the bath, so that was the ribbit. And then we were just playing with um, language, so uh, other words that followed that kind of consonant combination. And we came up with rabbit and then, um, yeah, uh, robot as well. And kind of set myself a challenge to see, can you actually write a story just using those words? And that's kind of where it all began. So for anyone who's thinking about writing picture books, I'd highly recommend the writing picture book course. In fact, I do recommend it all the time to people that I meet that you know have an idea or are thinking about writing picture books because, I mean, it, it, it is an intro, so you do learn the basics, but I think even if you had quite a polished manuscript, you'd still get loads out of it. And as I said, even hearing from the teacher who has so much experience and has worked in the industry, so kind of finding out the intricacies of the publishing industry is so helpful. Um, and you, it will help you polish up your manuscripts um, further. There's no way you could do that course and not learn something that would take away and make your manuscript stronger. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash picturebooks. All right, back to the questions. Tracy has asked, have you ever thought of writing a book about your life and success? Or has anyone else written an article or book about your life and success? Oh, Tracy, oh my goodness, I have never thought of writing a book about my life and success. I mean, I've thought of writing a book and I have written many books about other things. But no, I just don't think my life and success is that interesting at all. So the short answer is... Uh, no. And I don't think anyone else has written an article or book about my life or success. I think the thing when you write a book about someone's life, as opposed to a book about something like a topic, um, you know, that sort of thing, especially if you're writing about your own life is if you, when you're writing a memoir, you do need to go deep. You do need to reflect. You, you need to really analyze, the reasons that you did certain things in life, the choices that you've made, um, the ramifications and consequences and all of that sort of thing. And sure, many people do that anyway without necessarily writing a book. But when you write a memoir, you have to have some level of clarity and conclusions on the on a lot of the things that you've done, said, um, you know, the actions you've taken and, and so on. And, and not only your own, but that of other people and the people who are close to you and that who, who are around you. And I'll be quite honest, I just don't, can't be bothered to go there. <laughs> um, and that's a lot of the reason why. Uh, I'm happy to write a how-to book. Um, absolutely. If you want me to write a how-to book on how to create a fantastic writer center or how to write a great course or I don't know, whatever, right? That's, that's fine. But, um, if you're writing about your life, I do think you need, you owe it to the reader to, well, A, be honest and B, for it to be a compelling narrative, you do have to explore some depths and emotions and, universal experiences that readers are going to find interesting and that they're going to relate to. And um, uh, that's just not my area of interest for me to 
explore that to a level that is required to write a compelling memoir. Wow, I don't think I've ever said that to anyone. (laughs) Well, no, I have said that to one person. I actually said that to David Lesser, um, who's one of our presenters, of course. He's not only a fantastic nonfiction writer, he has written memoir. His memoir is absolutely riveting reading. He also teaches our profile writing course um, and is one of the most fantastic writers in Australia. And I mentioned to him, yeah, I just don't think I'm – I, I can be bothered to go there. Um, well, put it this way, I, there are other things I'd rather do first. Wow, there you go. It really is true confessions, isn't it? You're, well, you guys, your questions are, are great. Really make me think. Okay, Kerry has asked, what is the most crushing rejection you've ever had? Oh, another true confession. I don't think I've ever said this to anyone. Uh, so, I mean, I've had lots of rejections, of course, you know, that you pitch certain ideas and they don't get up and that's fine. I'm not that fussed about those. Some of them might be disappointing, but I wouldn't use the word crushing, but the most crushing rejection I would say was I actually went for a job, my dream job. Um, this was quite a while ago and I I just knew that it I was perfect for it, that it was perfect for me, whether that's true or not is a whole other thing. Um, I had spoken to the managing director of the company who basically assured me of the job. I had spoken, not just spoken to, but had long in-depth interviews with. Um, I had long in-depth interview it, it, long in-depth interviews with the his his next you know, his two ICs and the next person down, basically the publisher, um, who basically, you know, multiple times, in fact, and we were planning the whole thing and I was going to get this role. And then, and I, I just thought that this was it. This was going to be the next several years, if not decade of my life. It was all the things I wanted to do. I had so many ideas and plans and stuff like that. I've never told this to anyone. I can't believe I'm, I'm saying this. Um, and then, and, and I moved my life for it. Um, and then that bit, I didn't really resent the moving the life because I was probably going to do it anyway, to be honest, but that was the catalyst. Um, and then I got the call from, the, the the publisher who said, you know, I'm really sorry, um, but they weren't going to offer me the role. And she was very honest. And she said that she spoke to the outgoing person in the role who I had met, yes, but had never actually worked with. And um, who felt that, well, I, you know, I won't go into the details, um, but the implication that I was, was the implication was that I was maybe too experienced for the role, which was kind of ridiculous. And maybe it was just something that they said, but yes, I was very disappointed and that would have been my most crushing rejection, um, because it was something that I really wanted at the time. Um, I was fortunate enough 
not long after to get another role that was, um, you know, uh, that I was still very happy with and um, that was still good. But it, it wasn't so much the role that was the issue. It was that I had my heart set on a certain thing and, and that, and what I had my heart set on, um, you know, it didn't eventuate. So that, that particular thing, even though it's so many years later, I still, I guess, remember that, um, how disappointed I was, uh, at the time. So yeah, wow. Just relived that. That was, um, that, and that was interesting because it was, um, not something that I experienced a lot because once I kind of went, would go for something, I'd just throw myself into it to do everything I could to get whatever it was. So it was, yeah, it was quite a blow at the time. Thanks for making me relive that, Kerry. (laughs) All right. So Rachel has asked, but I hope that was interesting for you, Kerry. Rachel has asked, during the editing process, what tips and tricks are there for getting rid of all those pesky looked, turned, smiled? So he looked, he turned, she smiled, etc. Words to avoid appearing to be newbie. It needs more than just a thesaurus. At least that's what I was thinking as I walked down the hallway slash corridor slash passageway. <laughs> all right. So that is a great question. And I think the thing is, is that you need, you, you often think you need those words. He looked, he turned, he smiled, he nodded or she, whatever. It doesn't matter, right? I'm giving you examples. But often they're not needed at all. And um, sometimes you can't, you don't have to describe the thing, like the, the turn, the smile, the whatever. You can simply describe what that person is thinking if you're in that person's point of view. Like you might simply, instead of saying he smiled uh, or he turned or, or whatever, um, you can say something like he remembered the last time she said that. Yeah? And the look on that person's face already comes to mind. And if you're not in that person's point of view, you might even say something like, so you're in his point of view, but you're, you're, you're describing what happens to her. You might say something like, um, he could see she was thinking about what he said to her this morning. He could see from the look in her eye that she, or, or, or she, she looked at him and it instantly he knew she was thinking of what he said to her this morning. That's probably a bit of a clumsy example. But you see what I mean? You don't necessarily need those pesky words, looked, turned, smiled, nodded, uh, you know, that sort of thing. You can just talk, you can just write about, what they are thinking. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense, Rachel. But you'll find that good writers, yeah, don't have those things. When you are clear on the point of view that you are writing in, then you 
then the rest almost comes naturally, if that makes sense. I hope that's helpful, Rachel. Susan has asked, what is the structure of the day in a newsroom? For example, the Age or Sydney Morning Herald, what's the usual process for communication between the different sections and editors? How do the various staff journalists fit into the picture? Do they work in teams with an editor in charge? Or how do the logistics work? By when do they have to have pieces ready normally? Where do they get their news stories and ideas from at the start of the day? How many pieces would a journalist be expected to write in a day or week? You can tell I'm a frustrated journalist. How I'd love to spend a day in there. (laughs) Okay, Susan. Well, if you are not able to spend a day in there, there's lots of movies. And the movies, of course, are big exaggerations, but they give you some hint as to what occurs. Now, of course, in the Age or Sydney Morning Herald, it depends on what section you're in. Because if you're in a section like Sunday Life, which is once a week, it's an entirely different experience to if you are on the news desk. Yeah. So to answer your question, answer all of the different sections would take me hours. So I'm only going to concentrate on the news desk right? Because like I said, if you were in, in, a, in the Colour magazine or Good Weekend or, or whatever, it's so different. So when I'm referring to the news desk, I'm referring to the people who actually report the news, like there's a new COVID strain or there was a fire in the Burnley Tunnel or whatever, right? Like an actual news of the day. And also this depends because uh, newspapers used to come out at different times of the day and they used to be updated but now we've got the internet so it doesn't need to be updated so for example the telegraph there used to be a morning edition and an an afternoon edition and potentially an evening edition right um also depending on how much news there is because news occurs throughout the day that doesn't really happen now there's really one edition of every paper each day so um and also it depends on the beat you're on. Now, the beat you're on is the is the topic that you cover. So you could be on the crime beat or the urban affairs beat or the police beat or the education beat or whatever, right? So you cover just that particular area. You could be on general news as well. So you might talk about other breaking news like a helicopter crash or something like that. Um, but you would typically have some you you would ha- if you're on the i don't know crime beat or education beat you would have um your finger on the pulse in those industries so you would be constantly just as a matter of course no particular time frame in contact with people in the industry what's going on news you would receive wire news in in that particular uh, space um, and so on. And usually what you would do if, if you were on a particular beat and you had a particular editor, depending on how big that section is, right, you would be pitching those your story idea towards the start of the day and your editor would say, yep, we'll file that by the end of the day or that's really boring, find something else. Similarly with general news, there would generally be a uh, editorial meeting sometime in the earlier part of the day where the 
editorial would be confirmed and assigned and then reporters go off and start their day and then there would be another meeting, whether it involved a lot of the same number of people or not, um, towards the end of the day to, because news can occur during the day, to see what goes in, what got replaced because there was, you know, Prince Harry said something else or Meghan said something else <laughs> and they wanted to cover that uh, to, towards c- closer to the deadline. So it varies from paper to paper. So generally there's the meeting that determines who gets allocated what and what is a story, what isn't a story, and then there's more like a catch-up meeting closer to the deadline to determine, okay, did that story come in or did that story get superseded by Harry and Megan or whatever, right? So I hope that, I mean, that's a very simplistic view of things, um, but it gives you a bit of an idea. And um, I think that, I mean, they are they are interesting places, right? Newsrooms, and they can be adrenaline fueled. Um, it's changed a little bit because it is so much in in the sense that it is slightly less adrenaline fueled because previously they had to get all of the information ready and filed and then printed. But now you can just update stuff online all the time. So even if you have only half the information, you can publish it and then you can update it uh, half an hour later or two hours later or whatever. Um, So it is slightly different to, to some of the movies that are out there. But it's still, you know, such an interesting place because you are at the forefront of getting the news first generally. Certainly um, in the past when before the internet you were the forefront of getting the news first almost all the time. Um, Whereas now, you know, people can just announce things on Instagram. So I think that the other important part to recognize is that if you are on a beat, then having relationships with people in the industry, having your finger on the pulse of things that are going on is important, is an important thing to develop. It's not, uh, I mean, it's, it's an important thing to develop over time because that's how you break news and that's how you get the goss and that's how you get an inside scoop on things, right? Anyway, I hope that's useful, Susan. Listen, guys, these were great questions and I can't believe that I got a bit true confessions in this, but, um, you know, I wanted to give you guys honest answers. Um, and thank you. Maybe we'll do it again soon. Let me know in the Facebook group, whether you found this episode useful or interesting, uh, whether you'd like it again at some point or whether you prefer the author interviews. Uh, I'm back next week as usual with our usual format, with our author interviews. Um, and, uh, I thank you for being a part of this particular episode. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. Or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.